Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative types about how they do their thing. Today is a very special, unique, kind of different episode. My guest is Randy Slavicek. He is a writer and a performer. He's based in Las Vegas. He's the founder of the blog The Randy Report, which uh, covers news, pop culture from a G- LGBT perspective. Uh, he's been doing that, I think, since around 2010, 2011. Um, and he also has a podcast called The Randy Report. Um, I met him through my friend Matt Zarley, and when I saw Randy a couple months ago in Vegas, we talked about doing a cross-pollination podcast, and he was also going to get me up to speed on how to record podcasts through Skype so I can do long-distance things, even though I always prefer to do it in person if possible. So he talked me through all the tech stuff. This is my first time recording a podcast in this way. Uh, hopefully I can figure out all of the editing and everything else that happens. Um, but Randy was so generous and so helpful. And so we both sort of interviewed each other and just talked uh, throughout this um, throughout this interview. Um, so he talks, to, he asked me some questions, I asked him some questions. Um, he has a really fun background. He uh, was in musical theater for a long time. He danced on Broadway. Uh, he worked with Carol Channing. He's got stories about that. Uh, that I talked to him about. He was in Follies in Chicago. He toured um, in Cats and Chorus Line and does a lot of choreographing and staging all over the country. Um, But his main uh, focus now is the Randy Report. So we talk a lot about that. Um, Before we get to that, I want to encourage you to check out DennisAnyone.net. That's my website for the podcast. All the episodes are there, but I've also started moving stuff from my DennisHensley.com website, I'm consolidating people. I don't need to pay Squarespace double. Um, so you'll find my short films there. Um, other types of things are slowly moving over. So pretty soon that will be a one-stop destination. Uh, that's DennisAnyone.net. You could also uh, donate to my virtual tip jar. Help me cover the expenses that come with the podcast. Like I had to buy a nifty little headset so that I could record these um, Skype interviews, and that was that's cool. Thank you to Randy for telling me which one to get. Um, so yeah, all that's at DennisAnyone.net. All right, without any further ado, here is uh, a, my first Skype ever, interview ever for a podcast uh, with Randy Slavichek. Dennis Hensley, how are you? I'm good, Randy. How are you? We're doing a cross-pollination episode. Uh, <laughs> it's like when Charlie's Angels went on the love boat or something. I know. Can I be Farah? You're, you can always be Farah because then I can be – I was going to say I could be Chris Monroe. We could be sisters, but they never were really in episodes together, so that doesn't work. I'll be – Well, they did six. They yeah, did they did. The second year and the third. I, I, it's my era. You're a diehard. <laughs> I knew that, but I didn't want to like bring it up because I thought it was too obscure, but then you brought it up, so <laughs> we're on the same page. Um <laughs> Yeah, so thank you for helping me set up my Skype recording situation. So you, you uh, sound so fantastic on. Thank you. You were doing the Lord's work. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I want to talk to you because you do so many interesting things. You've got your Randy Report blog, um, where you do you know stories on the day's news and pop culture mm-hmm. and interviews, mm-hmm. politics. Like, how do you decide what? goes in your on your blog is it anything that captures your sort of fancy you know the interesting thing about the blog is when i started it in 2011 um i i i started because i would wake up in the mornings i, I discovered blogs like in the late 2000s and i discovered joe my com right. and so every morning i would like check them to see what's in the news and then one day my husband, Michael, said, oh, you should start a blog. And I thought, oh, great. So only two people read it and it'll be really pathetic. But um, I did. And I in January, late January of 2011, and I think in the week of January that I was – last week of January, I got like 300 hits. Like I don't know how these people found me. I don't know how they – and I was writing about myself at the time. I was blogging the way we used to really blog. Right. And then, as you know, blogging, especially for gay bloggers, for a lot of us, politics started happening, and we started like referring to the daily news cycle a lot. And so over time, without even thinking about it, I shifted from like personal essays about my life, and every time Michael got in trouble, the world would learn about it and what he did wrong and when he's going to apologize. 
and <laughs> it shifted into um, me covering the daily news cycle. Uh, uh, as my logline for my podcast says, welcome to the Randy Report. I'm Randy Slavacic, your host. I'm also the author of Randy, therandyreport.com, where you can find me every single day on the internet reporting on the daily news cycle in terms of politics, pop culture, and entertainment news of interest to the LGBTQ community. In this week's headlines, and then from there, we I recap. Wow, you've got that uh, so down. Just a little bit. I get up in the morning and I start checking like 20 different news sites, and I check CNN, I'm checking... The New York Times and the Washington Post, I still check my, my gay bloggers. I check Joe My God. I check Toll Road. I check Gain Star News, um, Boy Culture with Matt Rettenmund, who I adore, um, Kenneth in the 212. And I look at what people are picking up on. And the interesting thing about the, the gay blogosphere is we all have our own flavors. We all have our own things that kind of appeal to us. So I write a lot about indie, out artists, um, lesbians, gays, bisexuals. Um, and trans uh, recording artists because they need an outlet. And sometimes they're already famous. You know, I was covering Halsey before she got to be huge. And Lizzo, I was covering before she got to be huge. Um, they owe you so everything. I, I feel like they owe you everything. <laughs> I want to talk to you. You have 300 on the nose. 300. Really? Dennis, anyone episodes. I'm looking at you on iTunes right now. You started in 2010 before anyone else did with how right. to make a Cinnabon sandwich. <clears throat> Fabulous subject, by the way. And it took you 53 minutes to talk about it. Well, which the, the original episodes were the comedy couch with me and Tony Tripoli. Yes. Um, and then at a certain point, um, we decided to stop doing that format. And then I just kept it going as Dennis, anyone, because I love to interview people. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Dennis Anyone is a cute title. That's really cute. Thank you very much. Some people don't get it, it, but I like mm -hmm. it. But I can't believe it's been 300. 300 wow. on the I nose. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. That's so awesome. Good for you. I and like you know, to do it. I don't make any money, but it's fun. You it know? is. You know, well, I started my podcast as really as a companion piece because what I was doing is I realized I was like interviewing people. And then I realized, you know, people might want to hear these people talk. I mean, it's – you get to hear a Livy Newton-John talk. You get to hear Marie Osmond talk. You get to hear Judith Light talk. You're hitting uh, all my sweet spots with those ladies. Uh, and then once I started doing the interviews, I thought, you know, I could do a like a 15-minute, 20-minute news roundup. So you can catch up on the – Late, latest LGBTQ news in a quick 15-minute podcast. It's like the 60 minutes of gay news, only shorter. I just was reading your website, and you have, like, the transgender band stuff, and then you have that Gus Kenworthy and um, the actor mm -hmm. guy are taking a break, Matt Wilkes. Yes, Matt. That was today, yeah. Today, <clears throat> I need to know both of those things. Uh, well, and I so you're my one-stop shop. I never know when I sit down what I'm going to be writing about because I do follow the daily news cycle. So, like, today... I wrote about um, Paul Ryan uh, gave an interview to a new book, uh, the former Speaker of the House, and he basically retired to escape Donald Trump because it just Donald Trump knew nothing about uh, politics, and he got tired of educating him. I wrote about uh, this really heartbreaking letter that a teen left home because he had homophobic parents, and he posted the letter he wrote his parents saying, I'm not going – I refuse to be another statistic, and he left home because they were forcing him to go through conversion therapy and making him watch videos to change who he is and things like that. Um, it was really heartbreaking, and I love sharing those things because people need to understand that the idea of homeless teens is not – um, just a concept. It's a reality happening every day. And I want people to understand that and what people really go through. And then I posted about um, Gus and Matt Wilkes breaking up because people want to know. And let's face it, I follow them on Instagram and I like looking at them. And, you know, I'll post about my favorite Insta hunks and stuff like that. Who's so it, the it is guy? Who's the, who's the celebrity that you cover just because you like them? Like that the, the, they're like that maybe you show them a lot of love. Yeah. Well, you know, in the beginning of – that's a really good question. See, you're good at this, Dennis. I would cover um, – if I was doing what you did, I would recover Ricky Martin's every breath. Like, I do. Um, yes. You know, and, Ricky it, it Martin turned right on Rodeo Drive. Uh, <laughs> here's 17 pictures. Yeah. I, I do. I cover Ricky. You know, I have a whole like – in my Instagram, I make sure I follow the people that you know that I think are important. Um, you know, it's interesting. In the beginning of the Randy Report blog, randyport.com, um, 
Ben Cohen, the former rugby player in the UK, was really standing up for uh, anti-bullying causes. Right, and he I remember that. A foundation, and he was super hot and really friendly looking. And um, I went through a thing on Instagram with Alex Abramov, who's a Russian. Gosh, what is it? Well, he's a model, and he worked on a reality show in Russia. He lives in New York City now with his really handsome boyfriend, Brett Miles. They both have separate accounts. They're both beautiful. And I just thought Alex was really hot. So anytime Alex posted something, I'd be posting that. Then I got into Instahunk roundups where I just post all my favorites like once a week. I want yeah. somebody to do a, a movie called Someone is Killing All the Gay Instahunks. <laughs> and it's like a murder mystery where the Instahunks get killed one by one. And then you try to find out who did it. Yes. Yeah. And they're naked. Okay. Well, you need to write that because you've written movies too. Well, I've dabbled. We'll dabble. <laughs> um, you've written like like you wrote Testosterone. I co-wrote that the movie Testosterone. That. Yeah, well, that was the and biggest girls one. Girls will be girls. I didn't write you that, but I appeared in that. You appeared in I that, appeared so. in that, but I I wrote a short film that came before that that had Evie Harris in it. Uh, that was super fun. So, oh, Shining Star. Yeah, it's on yes, YouTube. If I you're a fan that, of Girls yes. Will Be Girls and you haven't seen Evie Harris Shining Star, go yes. to YouTube because it's um, it's really funny. Do so many things. Well, I oh, want also, you. I know you through my friend Matt Zarley because you guys mm -hmm. were um, Broadway people together. Right. We did Cats back when it was a good credit. <laughs> I love that is such a great oh that is such a great thing to say but yeah, it's so it was, sad I, and I don't mean it to bash the show but we really we we did cats in 1986 we were we were we were the first national touring company that America really saw which cat were you when you were in cats I was the magical Mr. Mistopheles oh, kind of I did that on a cruise ship once but only for a little segment and there was a lift and I wasn't very up? good at the lift <laughs> Oh, yeah. They, and it was uh, – Cats was its own thing. You know, it's a good thing. I was I was a dancer on Broadway for many years and an actor and all that. And um, it was interesting because my career really went in the right direction because I did the hardest dancing I would ever do in my life when I was 23 and doing Cats. And then I did that for two years, and then my next couple of national touring companies were A Course Line, which was hard, but it wasn't as hard as Cats. And then I did a national touring company of 42 Second Street, and which was hard, but it wasn't as hard as a chorus line. Did you have and to roll those coins? I did. We had to and, – and hurl it on the floor so that the girls could dance on them, and we just kind of stood behind them swaying and stuff. Yeah, we're in the money. We had coins on a cruise ship, and the oh coins – you're trying to roll the coins, and the ship is moving, ship. and oh, then you're no. going to dance on the coin. The coins were a pain in the ass is my point. <laughs> they were a pain in the ass. It was show they business. Were. Then I got into somehow they found me. Chicago the musical found me. And it's then so I went sexy into, that show. Oh, it is. Oh, so don't you feel sexy doing it? Like yes, with all those other hot cool. guys and the mesh and the capizio pants yes. and shit. That, that was the cool thing is I'd never been sexy in my life, and I yes. got to pretend to be sexy. And so yes, that's another you thing. Pretending. You, be, you just pretend. You just you weren't you pretending. Just, you were. And yet you just right. be sexy. Be and sexy. They, so when I went in the L.A. company, you know, they didn't have uh, any extra costumes because everything was designed for the people. Right. So what they did was, I kid you not, the wardrobe supervisor for the national tour went to International Mail when it was Damn still right around. Damn right they did. Of course they and, did. And, you know, International Mail had all those kind of black, fake, yes. sexy, mesh things. And they found me a really cool mesh shirt, and they found me black stretch jeans. Damn right. And for like three months – with that company and the when I moved to, to the Detroit company, I took it with me, and I wore that. And then we were in Detroit, and Walter Bobby, the director, came out to give notes, and I was on um, that night. And the next day in notes, Walter goes, Randy, what were you wearing last night? <laughs> As if it was my choice or something. I'm like, I know. Me to wear. Well, I had and a I gift said, card at International Mail. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> oh so my I god! So I said, you know what they gave me? He goes, yeah, don't wear that because apparently my black international male stretch jeans, yeah, had washed out, so they were just really kind of dark gray, and nobody noticed until I was standing next to everyone else in black on stage. Yeah, and apparently I looked really bougie. So, what big stars did you work with that came in and out of the show? Oh my god, I did it with everyone. Um, <clears throat> Who was your favorite? Oh, well, I can tell you my favorite. Absolutely, my my favorite Roxy was Charlotte Dembois. 
Okay. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean I didn't like the others. Um, sure. Because people were really nice. Um, you know, um, I, there were so many great Roxies that I did it with. You know, I did it with Mary Lou Henner, who's fun. Yeah. Um, uh, but Charlotte was just – Charlotte just found things as an actress that I just loved. And she was quirky, and, and it was just really vulnerable and stuff, which I really loved. When it comes to Velma's, I think my favorite Velma that I did it with was Brenda Braxton, who was just all around fabulous. But Stephanie Pope was brilliant too. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Bibi was fabulous. Bibi was brilliant. Um, who surprised Bebe you? Were- was there ever any, any like stunt casting person that came in that that really surprised you? That like showed up and for real? Um, yeah, you were like, wow, who knew? Did they? Let me think on that. <laughs> um, no one it's okay out. if they didn't. Um, you know, you know, I wouldn't call it stunt casting, but you know who was really quite wonderful, and people may not have thought of him is um. Trapper John M.D. Oh, my God. He's oh, insane. Gregory Harrison. Gregory Harrison, who I adore. Oh, I my God. These, for I ladies only. I mean, talk uh, about yes. a 70s. Uh, him in the shower and Trapper John M.D. And those opening credits. The rest oh, of my God. Too. Can you believe I remember? He, in, in the first, in the pilot, like, the he's being confronted in the shower. And he's like, yeah, the rest of me is pretty cute, too. And he opens the shower door. And he's like, oh. oh. I did Follies on Broadway. The first revival that's how old i am it's been revived since i did the revival in 2001 on broadway with gregory and he was brilliant and then like a year later we go out on the national tour and he's billy flynn and gregory was fantastic what's the worst thing that ever went wrong for you on a in a show uh oh god you're so good with questions um i i know the answer to that really quickly so when i was swinging the show in 2003 2004 after the movie came out they sent Chicago back. The two national touring companies had closed, and they sent me – they sent the co- uh, company back out, and they needed a swing at the last minute, and they went, oh, Randy. So that's when I, 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 I took the swinging job again, and I liked it by then. So I go on, and we're in San Francisco for a month, and in the number Razzle Dazzle, we used to have this thing called the death lift. And oh, we're God. All in- in like a yeah, it's always the lift, isn't it, Dennis? Oh, I hate they, lifts. I hate lifts. Just let me go dance. So, yeah. One guy would uh, – everyone was in like a, a, a horseshoe shape, and a guy would slide into center stage and lay on his back and put his feet up. And then that night, I was on for a guy who's the top part of the lift. So I would step in, put my back to the guy who's on the ground. He would put his feet in the small of my back, and I would just lean backwards and arch, and he would lift me up, and I would be like – like a horseshoe over his feet, like would just right. balance over his feet. And then it would hang there a second. And then he would, he would push with his lower back and I would do a walkout to the other side. I would like put my hands down and walk out like a, you know, like a, a back walk over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he and I had never done it. To, it was, it was both swings. It was me and the other swing. And we had oh, never, shit. usually when we'd gone on, it was the other person. That's the regular person. So when, when the regular person is there, you kind of like have someone who knows exactly what they're doing, so it kind of helps out. So uh, it was David and me. I won't give his full name. And we we did it once or twice before the show, and we're fine. But he was like – I was up there a while, and he has to give the impetus to start the walkout. And we're hanging out, and we're hanging out. And I'm like, oh, we're late. Uh, we're late. Uh, we're late. So I thought he – was wrong and so i tried to kick out i tried to kick over Uh oh i'm scared my hands were not under me oh shit instead of my hands being under me and like me walking out my hands slipped out i landed on my head on top of him oh and then the whole number just keeps going and the whole idea is that we're doing this trick and then right after that all of the cast like does this slow motion applause like aren't you fabulous right well i'm there laying on my head (laughs) the whole whole cast like leans in there to look at me and like singing razzle dazzle and doing the slow motion they're like are you okay right were you hurt i was not except for my ego which was right. completely bruised i'm like can i leave now yeah um but that that was the, that was the worst thing okay. i think that ever happened to me on stage yeah i could see it playing out in slow motion well, um speaking of worst things i want to ask you so yes. all these interviews you've done i want to ask you about this so celebrity interviews are an interesting thing because you have to constantly 
I find feel your way because sometimes maybe their publicist didn't tell you not to ask a question or maybe they don't want to answer it that way or maybe you touch on something that they weren't expecting. And Have you ever had an awkward moment in a celebrity interview where someone like just shut you down or like there was a moment where you kind of like tension, crunchiness? Yeah, you know, with with people – there's always – not always, but sometimes there's people that you interview and there's that thing that you have to ask and you don't want to ask it. Mm-hmm. But you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, Something just happened. and Or, yeah, I, I remember interviewing Donna Summer and I had to ask her about the AIDS stuff and the gay stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she had an answer that was sort of canned. And, but it would, you know, she'd been asked about it a bunch. But you could see her sort of shut down. Uh, the light in her eyes kind of go out and it it ended up being like the least vibrant part of the interview, but I had to do it and it was Mm -hmm. fine. It was fine, Mm -hmm. but there have been a few awkward moments, but not a ton. Um, I think I try to look for the opening, like the way if they, if they answer about something and it makes a natural follow up to get that other thing in there. I, Mm -hmm. I try to find the, the way that's the least, uh, obtrusive or of course you wait till the end you know you wait mm-hmm. till you get everything that you need and then you ask the hard question which by um, the way is a very good technique yes wait put it at the end uh i remember once interview doing an interview with jane fonda for a cookbook for us weekly magazine and it was just about a cookbook right mm-hmm. and but like that very morning my editors wanted me to get a quote from her about something else related oh. to ted turner or politics it was something that was like news of the day and I remember asking it at the end, and she's like, I'm not going to talk about that or whatever. Um, and I, you know, but I I, I just doing my job, but it was, it was kind of like a record scratch moment for sure. You have something called observation deck questions. Yes. The observation deck. So tell me about that because this sounds like such a great idea, and I, I'm going to I, – I, every now and then I'll read an interview online or something or in a magazine. I go, ooh, that's a good question. I should write that down in case that ever applies to someone I'm interviewing. Tell me about observation deck questions. Well, over the years of interviewing people, I started to come up with these questions that I found got good anecdotes mm-hmm. for my articles. Like what did you get picked on for when you were a kid? Uh, how did you learn mm-hmm. the facts of life? Um, just little things like that. And so I started a list of them, and I would Xerox – take a Xerox copy of it to every interview and just highlight a few to pepper in. And I found that it it usually got good anecdotes that, that weren't sort of overexposed. And when I started my podcast, I put the questions onto cards and I would have the guest pick out a few of the cards before we started because they knew, you know, oh, I have a story about that I can ask. And so I would just bring them up at the end. I should have had you do observation deck questions, <laughs> but I'm not in person to give you the cards. But I yeah, that's, that's how awesome. it that's how it started. And then those questions turned into this game that I co-created with Jeb Havens uh, called You Don't Know My Life. So Is that how that happened? Because, yeah, I wanted to bring It came out of those up, questions. Yeah. yeah so, so you have this game yes. that you developed. And it's it's like interview questions, but like people fill out cards before you get. Let me see if I get this right because I, I know the game. I have it. That's right. Um, you have you a fill copy. Out, you fill out cards, and then people choose the cards not knowing who the the story belongs to, right? Yeah, that's kind of it. Like what happens? Say there's like seven of you around a table, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one player draws a couple of cards and picks a question. One of these questions. Say mm-hmm. the question is: Describe a memorable encounter you had with an animal. And then everyone has a little pad that's about the size of a post-it note. They write down a few sentences telling a little story, and then they get gathered up and mixed up and passed out and presented, and then people take turns trying to figure out whose story is whose. And we have a fun step that's in the middle that keeps the handwriting from being a giveaway because a lot of times you know Ah, your friend's handwriting. Yeah. So So, you learn things about people that you never knew, and you remember things about your own life that you haven't thought about in in 20 years. It's really – fun it's one of my favorite things that i've ever been a part of and um yeah it's up on amazon now we've got 40 reviews and they're all five stars so far so awesome and only 33 of those are our friends so there are seven people (laughs) that are strangers no um yeah it's been great i love it but you also have this thing that i think is really wonderful uh life cast and this turns into another thing about interviewing people but there's a special reason for it so that people whether it's whether it's their life in general or if perhaps if they have the impending birth of a child or 
maybe children never asked their parent their parents yeah. about how they met or something. So talk about LifeCast because this is something someone can give someone as a gift or yeah. like if you go on a trip around the world, tell me – let's talk about that because I think this is so cool because who doesn't want to be asked questions about right? their lives? Well, I, you know, I love interviewing people, and magazines were my bread and butter for a long time, but magazines yeah. have sort of died out, right? So I wanted a way to use my interviewing skills, but also, you know, contribute something and make a little money. So I started this business called LifeCast, and basically people hire me to interview them about their lives. Um, so a lot of times, like somebody maybe our age would hire me to interview their parents who are getting up there, and they want to get their story mm -hmm. down in a way that is you know, entertaining and not too high stress. And so mm -hmm. it sort of functions like a podcast, um, but it's somebody talking about their life. I interview somebody for two to three hours and then edit wow. it together and use music and make this really great kind of audio heirloom that they're able to share with their loved ones um, as easy as you would listen to your favorite podcast. So it's always accessible from your phone. Um, and it's been really fun and fulfilling. I've gotten to talk to some some interesting people. And I think people, what I found is a lot of times, especially if it's somebody's parents, they're a little wary of like, what is this? But once you get them talking, I think people want to be, they like to talk about what they've experienced and they like that somebody seems interested. And right. I don't know, I think they found the experience meaningful and it's not too high stress. Like nobody has to be on camera. Um, mm -hmm. I bring my observation deck questions. So there's always a lot of humor to it. But it's a way of um, preserving the, the milestone moments of somebody's life. Uh, using... So like retirements or an yeah. anniversary maybe? Or... Yeah. And I've started covering I've, – I've, I've gone to weddings and asked all the guests fun questions and then edited them together. Oh, um, what a good idea. Yeah. So you can learn more about it at getalifecast.com. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's been cool, you know, and – for a long time, I've had those questions in my back pocket for a long time, and I didn't realize they were an asset, really. I mm -hmm. didn't realize what I had until mm -hmm. I started exploring it with the observation deck and with the game and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm just trying, to, trying to, to help people tell their stories and capture their stories for, for future generations and, and uh, not letting them slip away, you know? Yeah. What a great idea. No one does anything like that. You know, people do their little video montages or something. And, you know, my, my husband's mother recently passed away and they, they had to create like a, they used still photos and created a montage that would play at the wake and things. But that's like to have this, this chat, this podcast of, of your, maybe your parents talking about how they met. Yeah. Because I don't know how my parents met. I, I have no idea whatsoever. And, you know, when you're, when you're 10, 20, 30, you're not thinking about how your parents met. But, no. you know, when, maybe when a parent passes away or when they're gone, you might wonder, you know, I don't know that. And wouldn't it be cool to hear their voices yes. say those things in their own language? Yeah, in their own words. Like the last client that I did – his it was his father who was who had just turned eighty, and he was you know mm -hmm. had a big family, lots of kids and grandkids. Everyone loved him. He's still with us, obviously. But um, he used to sing to them when they were kids, and so mm -hmm. I got him to sing some of those songs on the tape. And I think it's just it's really special for the for the family to have that. And I think sometimes um, a stranger can ask questions that that of that they might not be comfortable talking about in front of their kids. Um, and I also like my parents, my mother passed away when I was in my thirties and my dad as well. And I never really talked to them right. the way I talk to people that I interview. Like I know more about, you know, Suzanne Summers than I know about <laughs> like how my dad moved to Arizona or whatever it was, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's something that motivates me. Like this idea that like, I didn't know their story. Mm -hmm. I never saw them as sort of separate from just being my parents. Like Is, what were their dreams? Uh, what was it like when they met? Um, that kind of thing. Oh my gosh. I think that's terrific. You yeah. do so many things. You know, Billy Porter would call you uh, a do it yourself bitch. I know. Uh, and I, <laughs> I get he, it. Because, he believes in that. Well, you have to, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of this, I've done a lot of different things because some things um, pay you and some don't. So you have to kind of, mm -hmm. You kind of kind of have to jump around. So um, I, I like doing different things, though. So, but yeah, if one track had just kind of gone, I might have stuck with that. But but right. 
That's well, all right. I'm the same way, and I think that's why I'm so drawn to to your 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 resume and your bio and your so well and you're super clever. I mean, just listening, to you, you're always so super clever. You're the oh, best person you. to be next to at a party. Uh. And um, <laughs> you know, I, I I love even your bio. The last line of your bio reads: "He is currently seeking representation and most likely parking." That's true. Which, Both of those are in, true. <laughs> which in LA is such a perfect line. When you first uh, moved to New York, I think you were acting and singing and dancing and you're on a cruise line and you, you got a job as, as, um, uh, cruise direct, as a cruise director, right? Assistant cruise director. Yeah. You did your homework for Princess Cruises. Yeah. But we were, it was an audition job. So we were doing the shows and then we would do, um, like cruise staff duties, you know, during the day and stuff. So it was a lot of work, but it was really fun. You know, a window opens or a door opens and you take advantage of that and then you do it. And I'm certain being – because I've been on cruises and I know what cruise directors do. And, you know, you have to deal with people. It's it's a personality job. And and then you take those skills and it opens the next door or the window and you do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing you know. Suddenly you're interviewing um, Donna Summer and asking there her about you go. The Asking her about her gay stuff <laughs> um, and making her uncomfortable. No, you know, I think the cruise ships were very helpful because we used to have to do what was called swanning which was going mm-hmm. around and just socializing. So mm-hmm. you got good at talking to strangers. You got good at asking questions. Um, I think it helped me when I went uh, into journalism to you know, know how to talk to people um, and, and try to think, okay, what, what's, what can I ask them about? What can I you – know, I got a swan out here for 45 minutes <laughs> before I can you know, go to dinner or whatever. So I think it was helpful in that way. Um, I think it would be. I think yeah. it Did would you ever do cruise ships? I never did. You know, I think yeah. it was, I was offered a production of a chorus line once as Bobby in the late 90s, and I said no. I forget why, and like a week later, I got another job offer, and so it just never happened again. Never happened. I, I will say, though, I've been on – I never thought I would do the gay cruise thing, but I have to tell you, a few years ago, we went on our first gay cruise with Atlantis Cruises. Oh, they're so fun. They're the best i never yeah. thought i would like it yes, i love it now, everyone thinks so oh, it's a lot of drugs and stuff and you know i don't do any of that and you know we'll go to the dances at night for about an hour and look at everybody's costumes because for people who may not know about gay cruises every party every night is like themed and like there's a disco night or there's a white party night or and so people bring a whole suitcase of costumes just to look super cool or whatever blah 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 we'll go for an hour and then we'll go to sleep and we'll get up the next morning and sit by the pool but it's so much fun yeah i there's and everything I the you could cruises. want there whatever you're into it's, yeah you know. i find the piano bar and um you know i will tell you this we were on the we we were on a gay cruise last year and Michael and I were walked into the piano bar. We actually Olivia Newton John, who's a client of Michael's, was Ugh, booked on the I'm Atlantis so Cruise love out of her. Oh, she's so awesome. We yeah. love her so much. Michael's been with her twenty years as her publicist. And we we did the cruise. She got on in San Juan. She did a concert that night and then got off the next day, but we stayed. And so after Olivia left, Michael and I found the the piano bar where they sang Broadway stuff and I felt at home and we walked in and I kid you not, someone came running up. I thought Michael punked me. Someone came running up and moved Michael out of the way. And this guy said, Oh my God, you're the Randy report. Oh, how fun. <laughs> and Dennis, I swear to God, I thought someone was punking me. Cause like nobody right. knows who I am really. I, and the, it was, it was a reader who recognized me from my blog, which absolutely blew me away. You never know who you're going to run into or something. And we laughed and I hugged him and I took a picture and I posted it and it was really cool. But I love the gay cruises, but it's, it's really a cool thing. If you haven't done it, it, it is cool because like for seven days and I never have the right language for this. So forgive me about the words I'm going to use because I don't like them. But for seven days, we are, we, the gay community are the norm. We are, it's just normal that we're all who we are, and you see people just freely holding hands, walking with their husband or their boyfriend or their girlfriend, and it's just really an amazing energy and stuff. And yeah. you hear that from a lot of people. And, and once the you crew do one, loves it. The crew yes, loves we, when the gay people come on because they tip good and they have fun. Oh, well, I'm looking at your bio. You worked with Carol Channing. Oh my God, for two and a half years. Yes, I can. Favorite you memory. Was... Favorite memory of Carol Channing. Oh God. I, I, well, the favorite has to be. In 2010, I, I did the revival with her of Hello, Dolly. It was my first Broadway show uh, in 2005. And 
uh, we did a pre-Broadway tour for a year. We went to Broadway. We were there for several months, and then I staged the national tour after that. And so I was. So you charge. weren't on stage. You were actually choreographing no, and staging. Oh, you no, were. No, on no, no. I was on stage. Yes. Okay. I uh, uh, the pre-Broadway and Broadway run. I was just in the ensemble, and I covered Barnaby. And then six months after we closed, they were sending the tour back out. And Leroy Reams was our director, and he asked me to stage the choreography, and then I would supervise, and I'd be dance captain. But Carol still wanted me on stage because Carol liked familiar faces, so I had to be on stage still. So I'll go ahead and tell this story. My favorite story, Carol Channing's story, is we were on the, the post-Broadway tour, and we had traveled to Champaign, Illinois. And this was like a split week where we did like three days in Champaign, Illinois. We had to take two planes and a bus – to get to what was like a soccer arena. And they built like a stage up on platforms. And we did the whole Broadway show, but it was like in the center of a soccer arena where the, they you know, brought the audience in. We faced one way. And anyway, um, it was a long day, and we do a, a, the sound check, and the lights are up. And we, we always ran the Hello, Dolly number and sound check. And I was one of the four boys who jumped over the pit. We had a passerelle, which is a path that went out around the orchestra pit. And we used it a lot in the show. And at one point in the Hello, Dolly number, she would be out on the passerelle, and I would back up and jump over the hole in the, between the stage and the passerelle. Oh and basically gosh. the orchestra was down there, like 20 feet down. But it was, it was eight feet. I could jump eight feet. And you get used to it. So I did it for two and a half years. So, well, for the first time, I don't know why, Carol, with the lights up, noticed that the orchestra was 20 feet down. And that concerned her. So we finish. It's now 7.30. It's half hour. Um, we're going to start at 8. And I, we go to our dressing rooms. Our dressing rooms are like locker rooms, like group locker rooms because it's a soccer arena. Right. And like the showers were open showers and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I have to take a shower. So I go in. And I'm taking a shower. Uh, and I'm just standing under the hot water. It's just me. And the next thing I hear is Randy. <laughs> and I turn and there is Carol Channing with me in the shower and all I'm wearing is soap and I'm tripping wet <clears throat> and Carol says we, uh, uh, Randy I, I, you, I, you know uh, uh, the pit is so uh, uh, far down and that's dangerous don't you think shouldn't there be a net and I'm just standing in the water, and I let her finish, and, and I, I just said, absolutely, Carol, um, absolutely. I will definitely talk to the tech director about that, and, but right now, um, I'm wet. And she paused, and, and just the greatest comedian ever. She paused, and she looks me up and down, and she goes, oh, oh yes, of course. Well, uh, you know, we're all just show folk. And That's turns right. and walks out. We're all just show folks. Show folks show it all. That's called. Oh yeah, yeah, she doesn't care. Um, and she would, you know, I would go check on her other nights, and the boys just thought they were so hysterical directing her into the shower with me. And you know, I would, I would interview her. I, I would go check on her every night at half hour, just to make sure she's fine. If anything needed to dressing or something, and I'd knock on the door, and she'd say, "Come in." And you'd walk in, and she'd be sitting at her dressing table doing her makeup, and she'd be wearing a button-up shirt that was unbuttoned with nothing on underneath. And I would be like, okay, good for you. <laughs> 75. So no pants, like, but what would like you have on the bottom? With nothing else. Okay. But, but like transparent tights, right? Like just skin. Yeah. In. yeah. And you're like, you just worked really hard at staring her in the eye. Right. And, um, but my, I do have to say in 2010, they called us back at the Gypsy of the Year event, which raised money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, and they wanted to honor her with the opening number, and they called the Dolly Boys back. And I, we, we did a version of the Dolly number with her for the opening number, and it's on YouTube if you look at for Gypsy of the Year, Carol Channing. I'm the blonde boy just living my best life because I was, I was on a Broadway stage again with Carol Channing 12 years later. Oh my and gosh. the audience just loved her so much that I just hyperventilated being with her. And they put me next to her because they, again, a, a familiar face, and she would gravitate to the faces she knew. And just being on with her on stage, if you watch the video, you'll just know that. I'm bringing I, it up right now. I'm going to watch. Oh. I just was. 2010. Was out. That was it. And okay. 
and you know it, it was just such an incredible moment and and they I ended up partnering with her a bit because she was 91 at that time I think and uh, I didn't want her to fall and I loved her so much because she's so important to me and so I ended up partnering with her to make sure that she was fine she was fine I don't like like she was frail but it was new steps and stuff, and so just to help her out, and a picture of us was on the New York Times the next day, and all my friends called me, and they're like, do you know, have you seen the New York Times? And there I was on the cover of the New York Times Arts and Leisure section in color with Carol Channing, and it was just the coolest thing that got to happen. How many did you go buy? Did you go buy the whole stack? Uh, I, I have three. No, I have three. three. I That's a three. perfectly acceptable number. You know, yeah. and then you stack them and you put them in a closet and hope they don't fade. And but it was it was cool. It was you know meeting Carol Channing of all people, and working with her. And she was she was awesome. She was awesome. She was a great great star. She was brilliant. You know, a lot of people thought she was kind of like just this one thing, and she was just a brilliant person. I remember being at to dinner with her one time. She was she would talk politics, and suddenly she's just smart as a whip, and she's like names and policies, and like oh I get this. Oh see busted. Oh, you're really all this, but you want everyone to think you're kind of this dumb blonde thing. Right. She was really just a great talent, a great, great talent. Um, you know, they really messed up at the Academy Awards this year because they did not include her in the in memoriam. I know, and I thought people that was don't baloney. think she was nominated for an Academy Award for featured supporting actress in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Right. She and you know she practically never made another movie. Her, her she was nominated for an Academy Award and never made another movie. But how do you become a, a, an Academy Award nominee and you're this legend and the Oscars forgets you? I yeah, just, I think that's crazy. Boo. Yeah. Boo. I can't. I can't think about it. And we just we loved her and she was so kind to us. She was she was very nice. And you know I do make a point of telling people she was very nice to us and she she would she would rent a bus if we were in a city for two weeks and we had a monday night off she'd rent a bus take us to a movie theater buy out a seating of a movie get behind the concession stand serve all of us wow and it, once everybody had popcorn and candy and everything she paid for everything we'd sit down and watch a movie together she'd pay for all of it she'd pay for our thanksgiving dinner she'd have a thanksgiving dinner for the company christmas dinner I mean, she was very generous to us. That's amazing. What? How are you feeling about the Cats movie? Because I heard Taylor oh. Swift talking about it the other day on Ellen and how they had to go to cat camp where you run <laughs> around and be a cat and stuff. Yes, we had to do that. Yeah, I know. I've and... heard about that for years, but I yeah. just – I know, don't know. And you know um, Dame Judith is, is going to be – singing Memory? Uh, no, Dame Judith is going to be um, uh, Deuteronomy. Oh, it's usually shit. like grandfather cat, but it's going to be the grandmother cat, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just don't know. Uh, uh, Jennifer Hudson is going to be Grizabella, so she's going to knock out memory. Okay. Taylor Swift's going to be Bomb Ballerina, the sexy cat. Okay. I don't, I don't, I think Ian McKellen is going to be Gus, the theater cat. He'll be wonderful. You know, that's good. But I don't know. I don't know about cats anymore. It's it, What like, when happened I, to it? It was the coolest thing in the world for mm -hmm. a long time. And, and then, then it, it was not. <laughs> then it became like a joke. What yes, happened? It, I don't know. I've never understood. It is one of those things. People used to say to me all the time, the first day of rehearsals back in 1986 is like August 1st, 1986 or something. And they sat us down in a big circle, and they told us the story of cats. Believe it or not, there's a story of cats. And, you know, there's more than just, you know, here are the cats. Someone gets to be reborn, and now we're going to all perform for you, and one of us gets it, you know. Yeah. But there is a story. There's more to it. And every cat is specific, specific, specific. Like Matt Zarley was Pounceful, who's a teenage cat, and he's like curious about everything, but he's very innocent. There's another teenage cat, Tumble Brutus, who is kind of like a little <laughs> bit of a – But um, even the names make me laugh. Like, yes, I, Gimble Shanks, the railway I cat. Can't. <laughs> he's like the cat on the trains, and, I just... but he's very efficient. And the magical Mr. Mistopheles was mysterious, but he liked himself. I decided Mistopheles liked himself. Like, I didn't want to be reborn because I'm like, I'm already fabulous. Why would I want to be reborn? Look that was your subtext? That was, yeah, was that, your, okay. like, yeah, I don't need to be reborn. I'm good. Okay. Um, you know, the Rum Tum Tugger was the rock and roll cat. Sure. Um, Bombay Arena was a sexy cat. Oh, uh, Demeter, who sings the first part of Macavity, who's the villain, Macavity, 
Demeter, what the audience doesn't know is Demeter had been kidnapped and taken to McCavity's lair where he raped her over and over, and she has escaped. So throughout the show, there would be these crash sounds, and we all think it's McCavity. The, the cat screaming, McCavity, is Demeter because she thinks he's coming back to kidnap her again and rape her some more. Wow. Now, you got that. Oh, yes. Now, Bombayarina, the sexy cat, she sings the second half of McCavity because she had a similar experience with McCavity, except she liked it. Okay. <laughs> she, she's like, he's a stud. I like to come get me again. Um, uh. So there was all this, you know, Tumble Brutus is like a teenager and he, he thinks he's a big cat, but like he scratches Grizabella to show that he's tough. And then everyone scorns him because they're like, don't act like that. Don't, you're being yeah. a child. And so he's like scorned for doing that. So every, uh, Victoria, the white cat is very pure. Obviously she's white. So there's this purity. Um, Syllabub is a, is a young cat who's very inquisitive and she doesn't know who Grizabella is. So she's the one who sings the little bit of memory during memory, the little soprano part. And, um, she's curious about who this person is and why nobody doesn't like her. And so everybody had a very specific thing that, that as an audience member, you don't know. But the interesting thing, and this is an acting thing that I learned, and I use this in, in every show after that, is what's important as an actor sometimes is that you are always playing something. The audience may not know what you're playing. Right. But they know when you're not playing anything. If you're disengaged, like if you're if you're checked out and you're really not paying attention to where we are and you're not in, in the moment and everything, I think an audience can always sense that. If you are in the moment, even if you're playing something, the audience doesn't know what you're playing. They know that you're engaged. They know that you're with them. And they they taught us that because in Cats, we didn't have spoken dialogue. And so the focus, like when Deuteronomy, the grandfather cat, made his entrance, how we responded to him with reverence told the audience who he was, mm -hmm. which sounds obvious, but if you don't think of it that, that way, if they just say, oh, when he comes up, pet on him and, and you know, bow down to him, well, that's kind of heavy-handed. But how we responded to him in our own different ways as Mistopheles or Pounceful or Tumble Brutus or Mungo Jerry or whatever – told the audience stuff. And so I've used that in shows when I direct and choreograph all the time is you have to be playing something, even if the audience doesn't know what it is. Cause you know, I'll tell people play this, play that, you know, in hello, Dolly, when Dolly comes back to the Harmonia gardens in act two, and we do the hello, Dolly number, I've set like 10 big companies of, of hello, Dolly now. And I tell the, I always set the number first without our Dolly, the star. And I tell the guys, you have to make up a backstory, whether what you, we all have to love her. We have to love her. And the audience will get that we love her. But we can't just smile at her and love her. So whether your backstory is she would come into the Harmonia Gardens and on busy nights she'd come into the kitchen and help you cook because it was just so hot and there was no air conditioning in the kitchen. It was really awful. But she would help you cook, and then she would start a food fight in the kitchen. We'd have fun because we never had fun working at the Harmonia Gardens or – Maybe she introduced your sister to her husband, and up until that point, your sister was living with you and your wife, and you wanted your sister to move out. So thank God she introduced your sister to someone who would marry and get you out of the, get her out of the house. So we all love Dolly for these different reasons. So the, when Dolly comes down those stairs in that red dress, we all have to approach her for a different reason, but it's all love, and it's and you have to play that very very intentionally. And I tell people that all the time. And then I put Dolly in, and the whether it is you know Betty Buckley, who's currently brilliant in the national tour right now. Um, I did it with Leslie Uggams. I did it with Michelle Lee. I did it with um, just so many wonderful performers. And uh, Lynn Wintersteller, who's awesome. But by the time you put them in, when they come down those stairs and they don't even sing yet, they're just going down the line looking the boys in their in the eye. Those boys are playing a scene with him and the actresses come in and go, Oh my God, they, they're all so nice. And they're all smiling. They're so warm. I'm like, because they're acting and they have a story. Now you're going to add yours and we're all going to have it together. And so, and it makes them feel really good. Probably. Right. They probably it, feel it, like they're the shit. Yeah. And you know, and, and every night, you know, Carol was, Carol made contact with all of us, with all of us. And so it was just, it, it's an interesting thing. What you learn, not in an, in an acting class, but on stage with people like Blythe Danner and Follies and Judith Ivey and Gregory Harrison and Tree Williams and Follies. And do you miss performing? Do you miss I it? I do. I do. Yeah, I do. I would do, I, if, if there was, but I couldn't dance today. I mean, because the thing about dancing is so many of my jobs were 
dance-based. And if you aren't dancing every day, it just gets so hard. When I choreograph now, a few years ago, I choreographed a production of West Side Story in San Diego. And I had the brilliant idea. I hadn't danced in six months. And I had the brilliant idea. I was setting the original Jerome Robbins choreography, which I learned from Jerome Robbins. And I had the brilliant, I'm being sarcastic, idea of <laughs> setting cool the first night. So I set cool, and you know, cool is so intense, and it's really hard. Right. It's hard. Dennis, the next day, I couldn't get out of bed. I was so, so, I was just paralyzed with inflammation. Right. I Like, it was the dumbest idea. Like, we should have done G Officer Krupke or something. I mean, it was just, it was so, I was like, Randy, had you lost your mind? I would love to get on stage again if it was the right thing, but I don't. I also like writing now, and I'm a journalist, and I have my podcast, and I like all those things. Do you miss performing? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it's yeah. it's fun, you know. I miss dancing. I, I still go to dance class. Do you see? I, I do. I love that. Yeah. You know, I remember living in LA in the early 2000s, and Billy uh, Porter was there, and you know, now, of course, now he's this big star with with Pose and his Tony Award. on TV, TV. Billy Porter. <laughs> But Billy called me one day and goes, oh, I'm going to go take Michael Owen's class, dance class. And Michael had taught in New York for many years, and we all knew his warm-up. So I went and took dance class with, with Billy. You know, Billy kept taking dance class. You know, Billy never stopped. And people think of him for his singing and his acting. But boy, can dance his ass off. And, yeah. uh, you know, he kept going to class. You keep going to class. And I really do like dancing. It's When it's a gift, and, and I say it's a gift, I don't mean it like, oh, aren't I wonderful – I say it's a gift that I can't take credit for it. It's something that God gave me. And I didn't know that I could dance until the first day I got up when I was really young and I was in my first high school musical. And everyone went, oh, my, you, you really dance well. I'm like, I'd never taken a class. Really? Well. Is that natural to it, you? That's amazing. It was a thing. And then everyone said, oh, you should take a dance class. And when you're a boy who's 13, 14, and you start taking dance classes, you know, everybody encourages you because there are no boys. And then just – it it snowballed. It was a thing. And I always thought I was going to be an actor and singer because I started singing when I was like six years old. And I wanted to be Donny Osmond because when I was, you know, six years old, Donny Osmond, the, the Osmond brothers were super famous and everyone loved Donny. And I years later I realized, and this is like really deep, um, I realized like when I was 35, I wanted to be Donny Osmond because I thought if I was Donny Osmond, people would love me. Oh my gosh. I and I don't mean that like I wasn't loved, but I thought everyone loves Donny Osmond and and somehow viscerally on a gut level I thought, you know, well if I was him, they everyone would love me. I would, yeah, all my problems and, would be solved. And I did not figure that out until I was like 35, 38. And one day it came to me I went, "Oh." But I always liked being I always liked singing, I always liked acting. Um and when the dance thing happens, suddenly I'm a boy and I dance, and suddenly you're a dancer. Next thing you know, you go to New York City and you're cast in a brand new national tour of Cats back when it was a good credit. I have one more question for you to wrap up before we wrap up. Going back to your journalism and the writing that you do every day, why do you love it? You know why? A, a few years ago, I actually do have a direct answer to that. I was at a party and someone – I was talking about politics, which has been very important to me. When I, when I was little – let me back up a bit. When I was little, I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of everything. And then when I was – this goes back to Cats again. When I was in Cats and, and I – It all go, everything yeah, goes back to Cats. It all goes back to Cats. It's, it's, it. it's much deeper than we ever dreamed. Right. I remember there was a, an, an actress in the show, a dancer who played Demeter, uh, Deb, and she was having a fight with her boyfriend in Dallas. And he was a musician in the show. And she turned to him one day, and I just happened to be in the hallway, and she goes, you know, Hugh, I'm not afraid of anything. Like, she was this little, cute little thing, but she was like – she's going to punch him if she needed to. But she turned – she said that. I remember that, that resonated with me. I'm not afraid of anything. And I realized that I'd been afraid of so many things my whole life because I was just – I was afraid of not being liked or I was afraid of just everything. And the reason I mention that, though, is somewhere when I heard that, I decided I'm just going to decide I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just right. I'm I'm just not going to be afraid anymore. And like magic, I kind of wasn't. I just pretended I'm not afraid of anything. And so that snowballed into I started getting involved in politics and reading a lot about it and becoming passionate about it and raising my voice. And until that time, I would have been afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. And one day I was at a party and I was talking about politics and someone said, "How do you know all this?" And I don't think I'm I was all that smart. I just happened to follow politics. And I thought, "How do you not?" 
Right. And that was part of what – when I started the blog, I started sharing things because I thought part you, – you asked me earlier, like, what do I choose to write about? I read about things that I think people should know. Sometimes it's something uplifting, and it's just a human nature story that is uplifting because we also need those things in life. We can, we can report on all the bad stuff that happens. There's a lot of that in life right now. But I want people to know that there are good things happening in life. I also want people to be educated. And, and now that we have this phrase, fake news, I want people to really know the truth about what's going on in politics. So I, I only – when I write about news, it's not opinion. I'm just reporting the facts. And I, what I do is I make it brief because nobody wants to read you, you know, like a 2,000-word article you know, like in the New York Times, they do a wonderful job. But my perspective, and I find a lot of people is, they want to know what a story is in like two, three, four paragraphs, and that's it. So what's important to me is to share with people what I think they should know about what's going on in in life today in news, whether it's politics or pop culture entertainment. And maybe it's because it is a really wonderful performance on TV going on right now, and I think you should see this because it's just fabulous. Or there's something in politics. That's what really drove me to do the writing that I do, and that's what became important to me, is I want people to know things. I don't want people to be at a party and be quiet in a conversation because they don't know anything about it, so they're going to choose to just be quiet. Because right. they don't know. I want people to know. I don't want another person to say, how do you know that? Because my answer might be, how do you not? So um, thank you for doing this, and thank you for helping me learn how to use my equipment. And uh, Is that add, a euphemism? <laughs> add, that's a euphemism. It is. <laughs> um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. You have a great day. Dennis. You too. Okay. Bye, Randy. Bye. Thanks again to Randy for doing the podcast, but also for talking me through – all the tech stuff, it took us about an hour, maybe not quite an hour, before we actually started recording to get everything going. Because um, you know how it is with tech stuff. You have to figure it out. And I'm not the most savvy in that way. But I think we're getting there. So thanks, Randy. You were awesome to help me do that. I feel like I've uh, reached a landmark place after only 300 episodes. I don't know. Anyway... Let's move on. So this happened. Um, I am obsessed with the show on NBC called Songland. Has anybody watched it? It's um, about songwriters, and it's like a voice or an American Idol or a you know competition show where these different songwriters, every week there's an, an artist there like a Megan Trainor or a John Legend, Jonas Brothers, and these different songwriters come in and pitch a song to the artist, and then the artist picks the top three songs that they like the best. Each of those... Songwriters get paired with one of the super producers that are part of the panel of the show, and they're Esther Dean, who's a big uh, R&B pop hit maker for like Rihanna and Katy Perry, uh, Shane McAnally, who's that gay guy in Nashville who has had a million number one hits with like Casey Musgraves and Miranda Lambert and all these people, and then uh, Ryan Tedder, who is uh, from One Republic and also a huge producer and songwriter. And looks very young. Like, he's been on the scene for at least 10 years. And he looks like he's, like, 25. I don't understand. Anyway, I love the show. I always am moved by it. But I think what I love about it is you see the creative process at work. You see the producers spark with ideas uh, about, oh, what if we did this? And you see it actually happen in front of you. And it's kind of like, remember when Project Runway first came on and everyone was so refreshed because it was a reality show that people weren't like trying to tear each other down and it was really about creativity and talent. And that's kind of what comes through here. You just see the excitement and the creative process and I think songs are like miracles. I think they just sort of emerge and come together and it's fun to sort of watch that happen. And the first review I read of it before I watched it sort of criticized the show for taking the song from the artist and then making all these changes on the show to try to make it a hit or whatever. Like they were corrupting what was good about these aspiring people. And then when I watched it, I was like, yeah, maybe. But it's only one song. It's not their entire catalog. And also, they get a chance to be in the room with the people that are at the top of this industry. Like, and of course they have to try to cater the song to the art, the Jonah. They have to make your song a Jonas Brothers song or whatever. In other words, I don't think it's like ripping off these poor songwriters. I mean, I don't know what the deal is financially. Maybe that is. But this idea that they take their stuff and, and 
you know, run with it and change it and make it, oh, so commercial and take away what's special about it. No, I don't buy that. Um, you know, and it's one song. It's not, it's not going to kill them. And it's giving these guys, these songwriters, like, real opportunities. And all of, at the end of every episode, you see the artist recording the song and then you can go buy it or listen to it on Spotify. And I think a lot of those songs are, like, now in the, you know, top iTunes things. Anyway, I'm super into Songland. Uh, there you go. That's all I have. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you again, Randy, for talking me through that. Um, catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.